the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, this, this is a paradigm. So it's like the Buddha is the, the knowing in the present. So it's like being born as a conscious entity in the universe. Each one of us, when we're born, is that we're, we're operating now within a within a human form, a conscious entity in the universe. And this uh, conscious entity we call ourselves, we give it a name and we, we uh, kind of create a personality around it, this uh, entity. And, and therefore when we become uh, a person of various kinds and identify with the cultural conditioning, social conditioning that we happen to get from whatever family, whatever group we're born into. And so the, uh, the, this is a conditioning process that, that uh, we believe in and we interpret experience through these conditions. Now, just assume that all these conditions are they're coming out of not understanding the Dhamma, not knowing the truth of the way it really is. We're kind of programmed and primed through um, the, maybe the goodwill, good intentions of our own parents and our, uh, acquiring the biases and prejudices of our own ethnic background, our own cultural group, social group, whatever. These are conditioned into the mind. Some are good, uh, some, are, some of the conditioning is quite good, some of it isn't all that good. Some of it can be absolutely terrible. It's born into abusive family with, uh, with, all, with a kind of dreadful, hateful attitudes and all that. It get conditioned through, through abuse, brutality, and uh, that kind of experience also is a conditioning process. But mindfulness is, is getting beyond the conditioning of the mind, it is a, the true nature of the mind, which is the purity before other conditions arise, before you become anything. Like a baby, isn't isn't a person? Doesn't have a personality, doesn't identify itself as a, as even a baby or a, being an American or being a male or female baby. Isn't it? So the mind is is not conditioned yet to see itself through perceptions, and and we acquire this as we, uh, this sense of ourself, through ignorance of the Dhamma. So now we're, we're awakening out of that ignorance, not understanding things as they really are. And so the ability to pay attention, awaken, listen, you're actually opening again that door to the deathless and to the purity of being.
before you become anything. So it is, it's a state of purity and intelligence, but it's not personal, there's no, it's not, it has no personality to it. It has no color, no gender, no quality, no quantity. So it's like light, isn't it? Uh, light itself, it has, it is just light, and you, it is, it has no color, but it it makes color possible. So the, the Buddha is this state of knowing, like being a, a conscious entity in the universe. You're actually, in terms of, of practical, the way it is, the practicalities of experience in the present, each one of us is the center of the universe. And this isn't, uh, this don't let this go to your head. Because it's not based on, on my personality, thinking I am Arjun Sumedho, I'm the center of the universe, but in terms of experience, isn't it? Right now, even though we're all sitting in this hall, each one of us uh, is, is the center of the experience. So, in my voice is in your mind, isn't it? You, the conventional reality is I'm sitting up here and I'm speaking and you're hearing my voice and, and you look at it in terms of, of a cultural conditioning and conventional reality. Now we're getting beyond the conventional reality, the way it appears, and the way we're used to, that way everybody agrees to perceive things into direct knowing, direct knowledge, which is the Buddha, Buddha knowledge. Buddha knows the way it is. So in this way, you know, the, the, it's important to, to recognize that, this, that, this, that, that the position of being a conscious entity born into a human body with the human karma and the uh, sensitivity that that implies in this sense realm that we live in, that that your that the experience is that the universe impinges upon this form, the pressures, the the forces of the universe contact this this form, this body, these senses. Now, how you interpret that, you, can, you don't have to. You can get out of your personal interpretations of experience, which is, makes it all... Which can make, when you look at it personally, it's very threatening, and, and uh, you know, one feels very vulnerable and very uh, kind of frightened by the intensity of a whole universe impinging on this rather delicate form. 
So in terms of getting beyond interpreting a, 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 from the personality view to the Buddha, to the Buddha view, or to the observing, contemplating directly the way it is as experience here and now. Now it's important to, to to be able to see that what direct knowledge to to be able to, this is what you're using. It's not something. It's not a kind of ability you acquire uh, through study of Buddhism. It's something you learn how to use. It's wisdom is natural to this state. It's not something you have to get. It's something you you're developing a confidence in using wisdom rather than trying to get wisdom from Buddhist uh, texts or from Buddhist teachers or whatever. On the personal level, you might think, well, I don't have any wisdom. I've got to study hard and practice a lot in order to be wise, become wise, because I've made so many stupid mistakes in my life and I've got so many problems and I don't have any wisdom. Maybe Ajahn Sumedho has a lot of wisdom. That's the conventional reality. That's the personal interpretation, isn't it? That's personality view. So direct knowledge is knowing that that assumption, I, I'm a person with a lot of problems, I don't have very much wisdom, I have to practice hard in order to become wise, is what? What is it in terms of the present moment? It's a condition arising, ceasing. If you determined, and I found with this this kind of practice, I deliberately think these things so that I can see them, because if you're just thinking in a kind of proliferating way about what you should be and how you're so attached to your personality and you're attached to your children and you're attached to your partners and you're attached to your professions and 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 you've got so many attachments this is all uh, personality view isn't it this sense of I'm very attached and one, yesterday talking to a woman she was saying how much she's attached to her grandchild And so, this idea of letting go of her grandchild. <laughs> but this, is, this, this, this whole attitude of, I'm attached to my grandchild, is, a, is what is its personality view, isn't it? It's a, it's a conventional assumption. But in the, in the, in the present moment, this... this this view can be seen, isn't it? It's a view. You can listen to yourself thinking, I'm really attached to my grandchild. There's a part listening, isn't it? And then there's this ability to think it. I am somebody who's really attached to my grandchild. And that there's there's the thing that the, the, the movement of the thought but there's a listening, there's a w- awareness around the thought. 
So the the direct knowledge is in the awareness, not in the in the proliferating habits around the thought. You know about because, that create this sense of of you as a person with uh, that is attached to your grandchild. It doesn't mean saying I'm not attached to my grandchildren. <laughs> the same thing, you know. Whether, uh, but I mean, in terms of direct knowledge, and just to to point out what it really is, very direct, immediate, and it's where wisdom is. Learning to use wisdom, it's there for you to use. You don't have to get it, you know. Try to become wise. Just trust yourself to use it more and more. Let wisdom be a refuge. So this is what the Bhutang Zarnangachami really means. Buddha, the knowing, Dhamma is the known. In that it's the conscious experience, this state of being a conscious form. We're in the state of knowing. This is a knowing realm. Consciousness is knowing. So... We, we, we think of knowing as knowing about something, having a lot of views, opinions, ideas about things. And, but the Buddha knowledge is direct knowing, the way it is. So I'm not trying to convince you that you shouldn't be attached to your grandchildren or there's anything wrong with being attached or that we're not coming from the ideal realm about what, how you should be. If you were an arahant and perfect, uh, then you should be like this, should be like that. And that's but that's going back to the personality of you. Is an arahant a, another a kind of more refined personality? <laughs> Sometimes we do. We create arahants in the mind. They're just kind of better forms of better people than, than, than we think we are. We, think we create an arahant as some, somebody who's a lot wiser, a lot more wise, more mature, than we happen to be. This is all still personality view, isn't it? So the, the directness of this is just observing that, all the prejudices you have, the biased views, the, the positions you take, the, the, the things you think you are, the projections that you have about others. Uh, all these things are, but if you really pay attention in your wisdom, you're seeing them in terms of what they really are, as conditioned phenomena arising and ceasing. Because they have no, nothing to sustain them. They begin and end. And what remains, if you, if you begin to really sense and trust in the refuge, is this, this knowing, this awareness, Wisdom. Buddha knows the Dhamma. Buddha knows the truth of the way it is. 
I'm not saying I'm the Buddha. I mean, that's another personality view, isn't it? Around saying I'm a, I am the Buddha, that's, that that is a sure sign of madness. So we to, to put it in a in a more palatable way, say take refuge in the Buddha, because we're we're not we're not putting ourselves in into we're not the the I am even though I am the Buddha is a valid statement. If it's still coming from personality view, then it's a, it's a form of madness. So you can see why I keep encouraging you to trust in this in this awakened state, this attentive state. You're, I hope you're all in. <laughs> So then, in the present moment, is the the the, post, the the grounding, the touching the earth, using the body, the physical body, that this this body that we have to live with for our lifetime. So we're not we're we're, we're using this, but it's a helpful thing. It's a it's something that can help us. If we look at it in the right way, if we look at it in a in a personal way, then then we suffer a lot from the body. Is there, can any of us be as good looking as we would like to be, or you know, can we, you know, getting old and hair falls out or turns gray or something, and and uh, vanity is a very cruel thing, isn't it? When you identify with your body and you look into the mirror and you, your critical mind goes off. Yeah. Nose too big, eyes too small. <laughs> too fat, too thin. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's mean-heartedness, isn't it? You're, you're just criticizing and finding fault with this body. Looking at it just because you don't, because you're comparing it maybe to a, a picture in a magazine, of a what a perfect man or woman should look like. So it's a kind of cruelty, self-abuse, vanity. I consider like abusing yourself. But wise reflection isn't cruel, isn't it? It's not not demanding your body be anything, or feeling that somehow uh, that you're inferior because your body isn't as good as someone else's, or isn't as attractive, or whatever. But it's beginning to recognize the opportunity how to use this body for mindfulness, for developing wisdom. So touching the earth, being aware of just the, 
what it is to have a body, the weight of it, the the, the qualities of physica of a physical form, a sensual form, a form that feels everything. Now this is a this is the experience of feeling. Sensitivity implies it's a pleasure pain neutral feeling. This is natural to this form. This is a sense realm we live in. We're born into a sense realm, sensitive realm, feeling realm. This is the way it is. So uh, we're in this sensitive, with this sensitive form. What can we learn from it? And so then we're, we're beginning to contemplate it in terms of experience rather than in terms of it being personal. There's like this, the four postures, the, the Vedana, the feeling of it, the sense experiences through sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the mental state, the memory, retentive, with being able to remember, have memories, language, thought, emotion, all around, put, put into this category of the five khandhas or five aggregates, helps to contemplate the experience of namarupa, body and mind. this relationship, Buddha knows the Dhamma, so this direct knowing, when you're in the state of pure attention, that's, and what you're aware of, and wisdom from Buddha knows the way it is, the Dhamma, and the way it is, is all conditions are impermanent. Sapesankaranicca. Which is not a statement about that somehow conditions are not worth anything because they're impermanent. Because some people, some of the people that practice Buddhism think, well, it's just impermanent. Condition phenomena is, you know, there's a kind of spurious logic they use. And because it's impermanent, it's not worth anything. But it's not, it's not a, a value judgment saying, Condition phenomena is impermanent, not making a statement about the quality or value of any condition, but it's just noting the way it is. If you can find a condition that's permanent, tell me. This sound of silence, the nada sound, helps to, to it's where you get to the edge, where it's like you're, you're suddenly kind of in a state of this receptive openness. You can't get beyond that. It's like, it's like you've reached the eye of the storm or the, 
center, the, the still point, the center of being. So then thought whirls you out of that center, you get caught into your thoughts and emotions and you're kind of back into the wheels. But, but as soon as you uh, realize you're whirling around again on the wheel, and you can train yourself to go back to the center, to the still point of pure awareness. Or like the eye of the storm, isn't it? The eye of the storm in the in the middle of a storm. If you if you're in the eye of the storm, it's still all this incredible fury going on around you. But if you if you find the eye of the storm, you're you're safe because you're not caught in the momentum and power of the changing forces. Another image that really meant, meant a lot to me over the years is a kind of Mahayana image of a lotus in the midst of it that blooms in the midst of the inferno is indestructible. <laughs> and uh, imagine this delicate lotus flower, beautiful lotus flower, in the middle of this in blazing inferno is indestructible. The power of, of an inferno is terrifying, isn't it? A lotus is a very delicate thing, isn't it? That easily, you know, lotus flowers are easily destroyed. But it, the lotus in Buddhism always stands for purity. So you see like Buddha images always sitting on lotus thrones. And the lotus is a symbol for purity. So in that still point, that still center, it's pure. That's purity. If you want to know what purity is, that's it. You don't have, you, it isn't something that you don't have. No matter how impure your thoughts might be. <laughs> yeah. Purity is never stained by anything you think or do. It's always present. So, and, and contemplate this. I remember years ago when I became a monk trying to always become pure through the keeping the rules and and uh, trying to control my thoughts and becoming a really good monk and no matter how strict I was with the Vinaya and how good I tried to be I never felt pure The purity seemed far away from me. It seemed so remote a possibility because I was I was looking at purity as something that I didn't have and that I had to get it through through uh, being you know fitting into the ideas I had of what a good monk should be. I had this feeling that no matter how hard I try, I, don't, I never feel pure. Because 
That's coming from personality view, isn't it? The view, I'm impure and I've got to become pure, is personality view. So then changing from that, recognizing the, the hopeless trap of personality view, gave it up, trying to be a per- believing in my personality views, and contemplated this state of, when I'm in this silent point, There's no, there's no self. There's, it's, it's beyond the conditioning, beyond the person, beyond the thought or the emotion. It embraces it. It's not like transcendent in a way of being high above and, and beyond all those gross things in the world. It's not like that. It, it embraces. It, it has this sense of being a still point a tiny point that encompasses everything is a, like a paradox. That's what intuition is, like a still point, an invisible point that encompasses everything. And so then I began to realize, this, this is purity, this, is, this state, when, when I'm in this, when I relax into this awareness, that's pure, and I, and I'm, and I trust in that. that. That purity isn't something that comes and goes, whether I'm aware of it or not. That's that's something else. But it's also very important to re- realize that that's your true nature. So you you're getting, you have, you do have a real refuge uh, that you can depend on to, to reflect all the kind of fears and desires and, and uh, acquired habits that you have as a personality. It's intelligent. When, when you know, it's it's an in, it's a it's intelligent. It's not like having a PhD, not IQ, but it's it's a pure intelligence. It's alert. It's clear. The mind is. You feel this mental clarity and the ability to discern. All conditions are impermanent and to discern the, con- the conditions and the unconditioned. So the, the human entity that we are, and each one of us is, is a point in the universe. That's, it's on the, where you can, you're on the edge between the conditioned and the unconditioned. That's why in this, this human state you can actually know conditions this way, unconditioned is like this. So this is this is why the human birth is considered a fortunate one. Ajahn Chah used to say, human being born as a human being is very fortunate. And when I went first went there I felt I was so cynical I thought being born as a human being was a bad joke. 
<laughs> I couldn't believe in God anymore. Just, he's a joker. This is a joke. And not a funny one. <laughs> But they, and then and, and that's a, but then they, pointing to this, and like Lung Po Cha is saying, that this is a fortunate thing. You realize it is that that each one of us has this good fortune now to to reflect, to learn, to understand. You know, not just helpless victims uh, caught in a, in, a, in a universal system that just terrifies us and they're kind of trying to survive somehow as best we can in the, in the jungle. So this direct knowing is discernment between suffering and non-suffering, self and not-self, attachment and non-attachment. You have words like nibbana in Buddhism. Yesterday talking to the staff and they're asking me, why, why do, you know, nobody ever talks about nibbana. And I've been criticized in Thailand for talking too much about Nibbana. A woman in Bangkok managed to tell me, says, you talk too much about Nibbana, shouldn't. But uh, I'm interested in Nibbana. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of being a monk, is to realize nirvana. <laughs> but it's an it's it's one of those words that that is easily, you know, like it's become a kind of high state in the minds of, in Thailand, it's, uh, for most Thai people in a Buddhist country like Thailand, the bond is very high, you know, a realization of, uh, that's very high and very uh, kind of difficult, and remote from most people. And then teachers like Lung Po Cha or, or Ajahn Buddha Nathan, they were bringing onto what it really means in scriptural, just in scriptural references, is it means realization of non-attachment. It's not a kind of a state you attain through a lot of practice. Where it's used a lot, isn't it? it as a, you know, they talk about nirvana as a kind of paradise. 
I was really in nirvana. They use it for, I wonder why they haven't used it for a perfume or something. <laughs> there's, there's samsara. No. I've, seen, I've seen samsara advertises perfume. There's a rock group up in Seattle called Nirvana. But the, what it really means, in, in, in referred to in, in the Pali canon, is, is it's the means in the realization of non-attachment. So this kind of knowledge knows attachment and non-attachment. So the direct knowledge, direct and wisdom, is to know the difference. It doesn't do any good to go around saying you shouldn't be attached to anything and then feeling guilty and hopeless because you think of yourself as really being attached to everything and your grandchildren and everything. You, I can't really ever hope to get anywhere in this life because I, I love my children. So that, that is, you know, if that's what you, you know, if you don't question that, What, what, what do you really mean? What is the direct knowing in this case? Is that that is a feeling, a thought that maybe you're attached to. You're attached to the thought of I, I'm attached to my grandchildren. <laughs> or do you know the difference between love and attachment? Because some people don't know the difference. They think love and attachment are the same thing. So because you love your grandchildren, you think you're attached to them. But are they the same thing? <laughs> and so they think, if you really love your grandchildren, you don't attach to them. When you're attached to your grandchildren, attachment always implies ignorance and uh, it comes out of you know, ignorance and then selfish interest. So you, you love your, you say, I love my grandchildren, but you really want your grandchildren to, to obey you and, and do what you want and you need them for your own emotional happiness and you use them, exploit them. That's attachment. That's, that's not love, is it? That's, that's attachment. I need you for my well-being kind of thing. But love has no conditions on it. That loving doesn't, you know, it doesn't make demands. I love you only if you obey me. That's not love, is it? <laughs> That's blackmail. Contemplate this in the state of attentive awareness. You begin to contemplate. What do you mean by words like love, attachment, liking or disliking? So you even begin to think more clearly and more precisely rather than just thinking habitually. Because thinking becomes just a habit for us. The English language, if it's your native tongue just becomes uh, like a 
we, we think we understand it because we're, we're habituated to thinking and speaking in English, but we, sometimes we don't even know what we're saying or how to use the, the words correctly. So words like love can mean almost anything, from to lust, to greed, to attachment, liking or whatever, or the unconditioned love. So the, the discerning ability, the Buddha knows the Dhamma, the knowing. Is, this discernment is to know the condition and the unconditioned. The created, the uncreated. The compounded, the uncompounded. The death-bound condition, the deathless reality. The path and not the path. Suffering and not suffering. Self and not self. This this is wisdom. And this is something that you you don't acquire, something you use through reflecting, through observing, through paying attention in the present.
Oh, I think this is a chance to ask questions during this period. If you have any questions, which probably none of you have. <laughs> yes? Well, it's where you just experiment and see what, what is useful. Like I found the, the nodded tone more useful in terms of giving a kind of expansive awareness and calm, where I, I, I can also, in that, give the space and uh, in which to investigate, like, uh, self and non-self, and, you know, where you can actually kind of observe what, 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 you know, what self really is as an experience, rather than you thinking that you're a self or kind of as an ongoing thing. And where you begin to see where there's, when there's silence, there's attention, there's mindfulness, there's no self. Then you, when you start thinking about what I like, don't like, then you realize there's a self arising. So you're, you're able to get a clear view of what is self, what is non-self. And that, that, then that gives you a confidence to develop. And you see the suffering from being a self all the time, then your path is very clear. That, this is the path, non-self, because <laughs> there's no suffering here. And uh, when I become somebody again, then I start suffering. There's no point in suffering if there's a way out of it. <laughs> yes? Well, I like she would she you know with the pressures of uh, these examinations, she'd get wound up in the into the feeling very stressed, and understandably so because it's a it's a very demanding thing, you know, medical school, and uh, where a lot of medical students would would take to drink, she tells me as a way of, of letting, you know, of releasing these tensions, she wasn't into, into that drinking. So she was able to, just by meditating, learning to meditate every day and to, and to relax into that silence and, she, and let go of these, uh, because in that silence you can actually let go of the, 
the worries, the anxiety about these examinations. You actually, or you're actually kind of embracing these feelings so that you're not just being trying to get rid of them or, or being caught in them. And that gave her a, a, a balance to be able to to study and do the necessary things to pass examinations and balance that out with uh, a, a, a skillful meditation where uh, she didn't have to take to, to, to drink to relax, <laughs> where, she, <laughs> where she could uh, uh, began to understand herself even better, see where, you know, where she, uh, you know, how she creates uh, tension and anxiety and how these things do not help you to pass examinations. You know, when you can, you can become paralyzed so that you, and I've seen this happen, I remember when I first went to London, uh, there's a Thai woman, Thai uh, student, doing a PhD in London, at the University of London. And she got herself in such a tense state, she couldn't do anything. She is just rigid with tension. She couldn't study, and, and she was just so, uh, so anxious and caught in this, this terrible... T- anxiety that um, she didn't know what to do. So I taught her meditation. And then she found that helpful. So she, when she got a PhD, she dedicated her thesis to me. <laughs> I'm quite flattered by that. <laughs> I mean, it was just like she, she, she was, you know, and I can understand. I was in graduate school. I got, I mean, I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> I mean, I wish I knew how to meditate when I was in university. Well, it, it's a matter of pointing it out. Like it, like people hear it, but they don't generally know what it is. So it's not not all that mysterious. But if you think, the thing with with that kind of thinking is that you think it, you tend to think it's very kind of remote, and 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 see it as a kind of something that will happen, so you probably miss it. Because you, you're attached to maybe a view about it. Or it's like people have told me that the sound that they're hearing, they don't probably think that's the sound I'm talking about. 
Because you, you tend to see yourself in a, it maybe is not good enough, or, you know, it's too, too obvious, so you, and, and you're used to seeing yourself maybe in, in ways of being not, not holy enough, or not good enough for that, and that you have to keep trying to be better, and eventually this, this will come to you, and then you'll be okay, that, because that's based on, on, a, on a sense of self, uh, Still, the sense of self is is influencing it. But like I became aware of this. Uh, well, I remember when, when I was 19 years old, I was in the na- in the navy. And and I was not. I'm not a military type person, so I was very unhappy. And uh, was. Uh, Miserable, in fact, and so I, <laughs> I, I went for a weekend to a to an Episcopalian monastery in Santa Barbara. Because I was brought up in the Episcopal Church, and these monks used to come to Seattle every year, and they'd stay at, at our house. So I knew these these Anglican monks, and I went there. There's a beautiful place in the hills uh, uh, near the Pacific Ocean, Santa Barbara. And uh, I was walking on a Sunday afternoon out in the sunshine, out in the hills, and, and suddenly all this angst and anxiety and, and misery dropped, just like that, just disappeared. Self-consciousness disappeared. And there's this ringing sound. And and I've, it's just like such a, it's such a beautiful experience, you know. Because before I was caught in this in this incredible kind of miserable state, and uh, and at nineteen, you know, you're, you know, it's a difficult age for a man. But you're really, you're really, uh, you know, can, you're in a, in a lot of uh, anxiety anyway. And then being in a, in in the U.S. Navy was no help. So the, the, uh, it was, and then suddenly it, it just dropped like that. And so I was in this state of bliss, and and uh, and I could hear this kind of ringing. I thought it was the sound of insects or something, you know, in the in the sunny afternoon. But what I did notice was the self was gone. And, and that was bliss, to not be anything, not be anybody. And so I thought then, oh, I'd like to be like this all the time. But, and, and I went back to the naval base that evening in San Diego, and, and uh, all the self things kept coming back. And, but I didn't know what had happened, but I knew, I didn't know what it, what it was. I wasn't on drugs or anything. And even though it was in a Christian monastery, it wasn't connected with Christianity. So, so then two years later, I came across Buddhism, and uh, figured it out that uh, I probably was experiencing no self. You know, <laughs> so you know that's one reason why I became quite, quite enthusiastic on Buddhism after that, because something in, in me resonated with that, with that teaching. The, um, 
Then in, in, when I was in a novice in Nongkai the first year, I noticed that, well, after that, I didn't, I didn't hear that sound anymore after, you know, for years, till I started meditating in Nongkai as a, as a Samanera, a novice. And then I began to notice that when I got over the initial kind of uh, restlessness and that, that, that I had in the beginning, and I was calm, I began to hear this ringing sound. And so I, I, I started to uh, realize that if I stay with that sound, I feel calm. And so I started using it for that, just for calming the mind. And then one day I had to renew my visa. So I had to, I'd been in this for, for months, this place, you know, all alone really, with, without much contact with anybody. I was in a very, state of very kind of, what do you call it, super sensitivity. I was, I was incredibly sensitive by this time. So that then I just could feel everything in a you know subtle things that that I ordinarily wouldn't feel. So and I had to walk from the monastery, which was several miles, to the immigration post. And uh, and during that walk, I walked through the town of Nongkai, and and I could see everybody. I could see the, like the the storekeepers or the Chinese shopkeepers, I could see the suffering in their faces. I could pick up on, on so much that I never really noticed in my ordinary state of mind. And I was in this, such a hyper state of sensitivity. When I went into the immigration office, I, I felt like there's this incredible wall of aversion to me. That, and, and I realized, I didn't know then what it was, but the head monk of that province had pressured the immigration to give me a extend my visa, <laughs> and they were angry about it. So I didn't know this. You see, so I walked in, and then because of my state of super sensitive, <laughs> I just felt this incre like a like a big wave, tidal wave of anger and aversion. Even though nobody did anything, they kind of. But there was, you know, I could have put up with that in a less sensitive state. But, but this was like really kind of shattered this, you know, it really upset me. Felt very upset by it. I went back very upset to the monastery. And then uh, uh, it took me a while to get back into this state of calm again. <laughs> But it, it, and then, then in London, when I went to London in 77, I remember uh, being in, the first year in London was difficult because there was a lot of, uh, when, I, when I accepted the invitation to go to England, I didn't know what I was getting into. When I got there, then I realized all the problems of this group that invited me. And there, there was, in the council of the trustees of this English Sangha Trust, there was a war going on. <laughs> and, and suddenly I was in the middle of this battlefield. And uh, the meetings they used to have, uh, the tempers were flying, and 
accusations were being made. And I'd been a monk for all these years, and, I, and this is exactly what I didn't want. One way to become a monk was to get out of meetings like that. So, so I, I, I kept, uh, kept, you know, thinking, of, you know, aversion to this place, you know, a lot of aversion to it. And then I remembered the nada sounds. I started using that, and it was like I was walking down. It was in northwest London, in Hampstead which is in the northwest part of London, it's on a hill. I was walking down this hill, and suddenly this nada sound just came at me out of thin air, and just kind of, I'd forgotten all about it. And, it, and suddenly, I, it just like it was saying, remember me? Said, oh, yes. And so then I began to, to use this in these meetings, with all this acrimony going on. I, I could stay centered in myself, through resting in this sound. And I could, I could take in what was going on. It wasn't like I was shutting myself off, but I was, I was not wobbling in, in aversion to, to the things that were being said. That, that was quite amazing. Uh, you know, as I realized how to deal with, with a situation that uh, before I didn't, I didn't know how to, how to cope with, with those kind of seen very well. So, uh, just learning from it. Now, it's, it's like, like uh, and then applying it in terms of Dhamma practice, of, of empty, you know, using it as investigation, because to, to, it gives you perspective. Using that as a kind of, like the unconditioned, because it has this unconditioned quality to it. It's expansive. It's it is immeasurable. It's you know it's it's uh, it's here and now, and it has, and it doesn't it doesn't cut you off from anything. It's embracing the moment, so that like now I can hear the nod of sound and still be talking. So it's like space. You know, it, it's not like if I do anapanasati right now. I have to. Forget you. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's it, you know because you're you're because that's a condition thing, the breath. So the the, the knot is like like a kind of entry entry point into the into the unconditioned. That's how I've used it, and it works very well that way because then you begin to to recognize. You can actually investigate, like I was saying to to this uh, woman here about self and non-self, and suffering and non-suffering, and uh, attachment and non-attachment. So you you begin then your wisdom faculty starts being activated, because that's what Buddha wisdom really is about: is this discerning discernment that we can do within the human uh, human perspective because we're like we're on the edge between the conditioned and the unconditioned and what that's one image I found like in T.S. Eliot's poem you know to to apprehend the points of interest 
of the time with the time intersection of the time with the timeless is the occupation for the saint. I mean, it's like the point of intersection of the t- of time with the timeless. It's like like in the human this mindfulness in the moment, uh, like the intersection where time and the timeless intersect. So you can. You can look at this at the time-bound things like your thoughts, feelings, sensory experiences. You can see you see them as a nicha dukkanata. You know you're looking at at the time and and then the timeless. So so it's like this. It's the point of intersection. This human present moment, and it's like the Buddha is at that point of intersection. And, and knows, can discern the time, time and the timeless, conditioned, unconditioned, self and non-self, suffering and non-suffering, grasping and non-grasping. <clears throat> so if you contemplate like that, then you really be, you're, you're, you're cultivating the wisdom faculty. So then you naturally see, well, no self, no suffering, unconditioned, uh, nibbana, only their <laughs> non-grasping. You, you, you realize this is the path here and now. And you, you really know this. It's a very clear path. It's not just a kind of abstract idea that you hope someday you might find if you're lucky. But it's, it's very precise and real. And then the, then you can see the condition realm and accept the condition realm for what it is without being uh, aligned with it or bound into it. So you can't, you know, you can't operate within the condition realm with the society and your family and so forth. It's not, not like I'm going to Nirvana. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, cruel world. <laughs> I'm fed up with you. <laughs> and uh, even though you feel like that sometimes. <laughs> uh, but but that's, that's, that's still the self. You know, if I hate the world, that, that, that's the creation of myself again into the world. So, so it's not a matter of, of, of despising the world or the conditioned realm, but knowing it for what it is. So you're not, you're not just being stuck and, and bound into an endless circular motion of samsara. Like the word samsara in Pali means this endless cycle. Like if you look at the way you're thinking, you just go around and around with conditions. One thought goes on to another thought and it just goes on and on and on. So, so, so the samsara is like endless cycles. You just keep going around and around and around and around. Nibbana is where you let go of the cycles. You're not getting rid of the cycles. You're not like uh, smashing them and, and demolishing them, but you're, you're letting go. You're letting the cycles still cycle, but you're not attacked. You're in that still center. And that's where you belong. And you'll find that's your natural home. 
Well, how many of you really feel at home here on the, as, a, as a personality, as a, as a human being? Ask yourself. <laughs> I don't. I've never felt at home as a, as a person or that I belonged anywhere. But in, in this, in the, in the silence, then it's a, it's a natural state where you, where I feel at ease and at, and at home there. It's, it's not like a cultivated, refined state that holds me, that I have to hold on to, but it's a natural state of being that, that I can forget and then be wandering around in the circle, in the cycles again. Yes? In uh, terms of right view, there's only um, anatta, anicca, dukkha as right view, and any other view, there, any other thing occurs, it doesn't have the view is not right view, or it's just an idea about right view. In other words, so when, once you start seeing that, Well, like the, that's the thing with the, those are called the three characteristics of existence. So, that those, those three characteristics are common to all conditions, or all that exists. Like existence means that what, what arises and ceases. What exists is what arises and ceases. So, so the... Uh, Say that they're pointing that like those words in Nietzsche, Dukkha, Nadra are pointing to, uh, say, the uh, changingness or transiency, impermanence, and and unsatisfactoriness and non-self. So that this uh, this is this is then for you to contemplate that is is uh, is rather than grasp the idea of a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Nadra. So like some people do grasp the idea, they'll say like, they'll grasp the idea that everything is impermanent. And, uh, and they think that they, they really are, you know, that that's wisdom, that, that they believe everything is impermanent. Where actually they're grasping the idea of impermanence rather than using the concept of impermanence to remind them to contemplate impermanence. You see, so... What, what the Buddha is asking us to do is to develop this kind of intuitive uh, attentiveness to the, to, to the way things are, which is not a view in itself. It's not like, a, it's not like right view is that, you, right view is, is, uh, is that everything is impermanent, but that everything is impermanent is, is, a, is a kind of pointing, is an encouragement for you to contemplate impermanent, then right view is, is, is much more like a, a, a profound understanding of impermanence that comes through your own observation of it rather than through grasping the idea of it.
Because a lot of, like in, a lot of people just grasp Buddhist ideas and then it becomes just kind of, you know, this use like, well, everything's impermanent. There's a kind of dismissal of life. You know, they, they use it as, as a way of dismissing experience. It's all suffering. You know, they, remember, somebody said, you know, like, I, I was, remember commenting on the beautiful flowers, and they said, well, they're, they're, only, they're only going to <laughs> fade and <laughs> wither. They're impermanent. And, uh, <laughs> that was a kind of depressing way to look at life. <laughs> you think, is that what Buddha wanted us to do? Just say, look at the, the flowers. And, <laughs> They're only going to get old and wither and rot and stink. Is that contemplating impermanence, or, or are you just taking a position? You know, or is is the you know the beauty of flowers is it's still beautiful? But if I ask those flowers to be beautiful for me, uh, and then when they don't, then they start fading, then I get upset because I made a demand on them that they can't fulfill. <laughs> So, but in contemplating impermanence doesn't means that you you you're you you're accepting the totality of something, the the whole cycle. Uh, so they like the flowers at their peak moment, at their most beautiful, and you can rejoice in the beauty of something without grasping it. And uh, the uh, the Blake poem, you know the the. Uh, uh, he who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So that's been another uh, thing to remind myself. Kissing the joy as it flies. You know, to not hold on to happiness or beauty or anything like that. Not try to, try to own things or, or hold them and keep them, because when you bind to yourself a joy, you kill it. You kill what you love. Uh, you destroy joy by trying to hold on to it. So, so the only way that the joy comes is through kissing the joy as it flies. You, you're letting it go, you know, you're not demanding it be yours. And that, then, because in the holy life there's a lot of joy in it. It's not just thinking everything's impermanent and everything is suffering and there's no self. And, and somebody said, look at the beautiful flower, they're only going to fade. <laughs> That's a real killjoy, isn't it? Yeah?
Well, they, like like the we you can't. I there's no way you can. Uh, that in the Theravada, that they'll let you establish bhikkhuni order. So, so like Sister Sunar is not bhikkhuni, but but there are like like ten precepts, like samaneri. And uh, so that they are on ten precepts, and then we've developed a training discipline around that, like based on a lot of the bhikkhuni vinaya, but it's more. It, it's not, it's not, you can't, we can't call them bhikkhunis. Because in, uh, in Theravada Buddhism, there's, there, there's a strong uh, reaction to that, of, that you can't establish bhikkhuni order, that only a Buddha can do it. But, um, but there, you know, there are various opinions about establishing bhikkhuni order in Theravada because in the Mahayana school, especially Chinese Mahayana, there's bhikkhuni orders that, that trace their lineage back to Sri Lanka, in fact, to bhikkhuni ordination in Sri Lanka. So you can't even make a case of, of apostolic succession or of, or of continuity of limit, lineage through bhikkhuni order, through Mahayana. But uh, but I, I personally don't have the. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned on that level. I'm more mainly interested in providing uh, ways of developing mindfulness and helping people uh, to develop an enlightened mind. Uh, so I'm not into kind of being a pioneer for a bhikkhuni order, uh, but I've, but I've certainly, you know, in, in England we've tried to uh, present forms where that are more useful for the for the women who take on the the monastic life, because like the 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 mechi or the Thai nun, is that works in a cultural in a situation like in Thailand, but it, and it, so it's part of a, a whole cultural quality there that, that, that uh, it tends to work within that cultural setting, but it doesn't work so well in, in the democratically <laughs> oriented Western countries. So, so it's, uh, this is an ongoing Problem actually, in, in on level of tradition. So, so my attitude is one of just doing the best I can with it. But the main emphasis is is on rather than on the on the external convention so much as on the internal practice. So that the you know let's encourage that using what we have for mindfulness, and uh, rather than trying to make everything what everyone wants it to be, uh, which is, you know, an impossibility. I don't know how much, you know, how successful it will be. <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> yes? What makes um, the practice a religion for you 
as opposed to just a technique. Last night, Bishop Sundara speaking about in Thai has a very simple view of there's there's skillful thinking and there's unskillful thinking. And I wonder where it, it goes. It makes the leap from simply being a, a technique that we practice over several days and we develop this, and then goes into the realm of the metaphysical and opening the gates to the deathless and all that. Where does it become a religion for you? Well, to me, a, a religion, uh, the word word uh, religion comes from the Latin root religio, which which means a bond. So it's like a like a binding of some sort. So it's like it's a a religion is a, a vehicle that points to the deathless reality. So it, it used to be, you know, like in in the West, we think of religion as believing in God. So so that you know, Christian Christians oftentimes think Buddhism is not a religion because we don't have a concept of God. Uh, so that they think we're not a religion, we're a humanistic philosophy. I've heard that from many people. But but when you, but when you, but that's just a, a because religion in Europe and America has mainly been uh, through uh, believing in in a, in a deity, in a god, in a creator, in a creator god, in having a, a theology and so forth, a metaphysical, uh, a highly developed metaphysical doctrine. Uh, so, and, and yet the Buddha approached the religious question from almost the opposite end of the Judeo-Christian one, which is that one is starting at the top, the Buddha started at the bottom. This is how I see it. <laughs> Like, like uh, to be a Christian, you have to believe in God. And in in Buddhism, you say there is suffering. So, so then, so suffering isn't isn't a belief. You don't believe in suffering, because suffering is a common experience that we all have. So it's not a matter of. So it's not a metaphysical truth. It's a noble truth. Suffering is a noble truth, and it's. It's the most common experience we all share, whether you know, rich or poor, male or female, whatever race, nationality. It's a common, you know, from the, you know, at the time of the Buddha to the present day, suffering is the same thing. We suffer in the same ways. Uh, so the noble truth is to understanding suffering, which takes you to a metaphysical realization which is the deathless. And so it's the Buddha, Buddha approached the religious path through, through a, an existential truth, a reality that, that we can all recognize easily. And through pursuing that with wisdom, we, we, we realize the deathless reality. So in terms of... of um, the uh, like God in Buddhism would be Dhamma, uh, and God in Christianity has become a patriarchal figure. So I mean, you've got so you've, you've got endless problems in Christian Christianity with God, because <laughs> uh, God is defined in as a in gender and in and in uh, it has characteristics. 
where you say Dhamma is, you can't make an image of Dhamma. You, you make a symbol like a wheel, Dhamma Jaka, but you can't make a, a, a human figure and call that Dhamma. Buddha can be a figure, human figure, because a Buddha can, you know, it, it, is, 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 it, take human form. But, but ultimate reality is, is formless. There's no, you don't want to give it a form. You don't want to make it male or female or, or red or blue or anything else. So, so it's, so you're, so in this way, you, you, Buddhism doesn't have this problem in regards to ultimate reality. Um, so for me, the religious, the religious pursuit is this realization of this unconditioned. And, and so it, it's, and, and so this realization is, the, the Buddhist teachings are pointing to that reality. Uh, but oftentimes you, one grasps the teaching and never sees the reality, like the finger pointing at the moon. The, uh, you know, the Zen image of, you know, pointing to the moon and you look at the finger, you never see the moon. Or if you just look at the scriptures, you, you'll probably never see the Dhamma. So you, you need to, <laughs> to, uh, to, you know, recognize the scriptures, the tradition, the... Um, Dhamma-vinya, as it is in scriptural form and in tradition, are pointing at a real at that reality rather than um, that we grasp these scriptures as as the reality itself. You see, so and, and this is where, like in in England, the intermonastic dialogue, you t- talk to Catholic um, monks and nuns, and. Uh, about this, and they, they they agree. When you talk, when you get into mystical side of Christianity, you you realize that you have to let go of your patriarchal figure of God. And and I remember going to a Cistercian monastery up in Scotland for a weekend, and they they had in their library they had uh, all these books by Thomas Merton, and they were all really glad to have us have uh, three Buddhist monks come and spend a weekend. We had long discussions on practice, but then the real problems came when it came to the subject of God. And then you could see that, that some of the Catholic monks, they just they couldn't, they couldn't understand how we could live a holy life without a personal relationship with God. And this is what they... The, the emphasis of this kind of personal uh, dialogue with God uh, in your mind or in your practice. And, and so they felt, because we didn't do that, that it couldn't be the same thing. There's this great doubt. Because so much emphasis, so much importance is placed on, on, uh, on, on God as a, as a patriarch, as a supreme being. And so this was, uh, this was um, one of the, the problems they had because it, it's very difficult once you've elevated God to such a, a high place to, to let go of it. 
So in, in terms of, that's what, like in Dhamma practice, what I'm trying to do here is to, is to not place enlightenment and realization of nirvana as an attainment that's way up there, because if I give that impression, then you'll, you'll, think, you, you'll see yourself always as not being able to do that because it's too high. But if you, uh, but if you begin to trust yourself in an awakened awareness in the present, you know, which is not asking you to do something impossible. It's not too high for anybody. It, do, it takes a certain determination and willingness to do that. But it's not, it's not asking you to do something that, that is too refined or too subtle or too much for anybody. But, and through that, that middle way, then you, you, you realize this, this ultimate truth, the deathless reality, but it's but you have to let go of your all your views and opinions about it, and learn to just trust in your in in the in the simple act of awareness, simple state of pure attention. The question I have is, is how do you get away with what you classified as annoying, but I, I'll put behavior after the end of it. You know, my conditioning that doesn't seem to to go away. For instance, in sitting and meditating where I can stay on the breath for a few minutes and then I'm gone. Or you know, just in speech with other people in the normal day-to-day activities, I'd like to use skillful speech, but it, it doesn't always happen. Well, it takes um, time. <laughs> <laughs> or mindfulness, anyway. Right speech was one of the most difficult ones for me, actually. Uh, <laughs> but because that because speech kind of comes out so quickly before you even you know, that it you can say be saying things before you realize what you're saying. So, but it, it but it does. After a while, you become as you keep cultivating this path, you, you, be, you, be, you develop more confidence. And then sometimes you do think you're not getting anywhere, but you can't believe those kind of emotions. You know, like, because emotionally you're, you're programmed for worldly things. Like your emotional habits are around the sense of yourself as a person, about attainments and achievements, about successes and failures, uh, and about your uh, whether you're an important person or not important person, and acceptance and rejection. So I mean, there's there's all the the, the emotional habits are conditioned for worldly uh, experience. And now now you say you're you the worldly experience. You're you're doing the opposite. You're letting go of the world. So emotionally. You can, that can be very threatening. You can feel, I'm going to dissolve into nothing, or this is useless, or, or what's this about? Or, uh, I'm, you know, if I just let go of everything, I'll disappear into a void of nothingness, is what it seems like to oftentimes emotionally, uh, because, it, because it seems like all the things that, that 
make you a person are important. You know, that I am this, this is my identity, and these are important for me to hold on to this. <clears throat> and that's emotional. But as you begin to give less importance to those emotions, not just to dismiss them, or, or, uh, but to recognize that they are conditions and, and you're no longer believing in them and, and, and so willing to trust what your emotions tell you because now you're developing your wisdom faculty. So this is, and, and the wisdom faculty isn't something, uh, isn't from emotional habits, but it's a direct knowing things as they are. So this is why I emphasize trusting your ability to pay attention and to observe and to even see your own doubts about your own progress or your inability to be mindful enough or, or your lack of ability to use right speech. These are all perceptions that come and go around the self. You know? so, you, so you can begin to even use those kind of doubts and, and uh, reservations as mental objects that you can begin to recognize with wisdom rather than um, being caught up in believing them. Yes? I need a little clarity around mind after you stop thinking about it. Um, I understand mind to be a faculty, but then you said the body being a mind, and I come from also this uh, Middle Age culture where there's a universal mind, and so mind has many different connotations to it, and I'm really unclear about what you're referring to. If there's a faculty, how can the body be in it? And is there like a higher mind Well, the, the, we, we want a, to grasp a perception of ultimate reality, but um, so, I mean, the, that, but the Buddha actually seemed to avoid things like higher mind and, and like in Hinduism, you have the, the big self and the little self and the Atman and so forth, and the Buddha seemed to to not want to use those kind of terms. So he actually presents no kind of metaphysical uh, speculation. Like Hinduism is, is a very metaphysical approach to, uh, you know, to talking about the ultimate uh, and the absolute and the, um, the big self and the overmind and universal consciousness, things like this. Uh, the Buddha never referred, in one, in one uh, scripture, he did point to the, uh, what he called the Vinyanang Anidasanang Anandang Sapato Pabang, which is uh, consciousness that is unlimited and deathless and radiant. But there's only one reference in the whole scripture. But, and so people grasp that, you know. <laughs> but but um, the value I've found through the Buddhist approach is just seeing that very desire to to have a concept to apply to an ul- to ultimate realization, where Buddha was was using it more through like non-grasping 
not like nibbana means non-grasping, non-self, it, and it tends towards you know logically towards in a kind of annihilationism, but in terms of if you but we're not approaching it logically anymore, but intuitively, when you let go of everything, including the desire to know about the true nature of mind and what's it, what it, what it's called, then what it, then what's left, and there and, and this is why I keep pointing to 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 this trusting yourself to to realize that, not your ego. Because you know, like just in any any moment, like when 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 I let go of everything, what's left is a pure pure state of attention. And uh, intelligence, it's not personal anymore. It's not it's not mine. And and I began and and that and and I, and as I see that more and more and reflect on it, then I. I don't need to have a name for anything anymore. It's like like knowing without perception. It's a it's a direct intuitive knowing without perceiving it in any way. And uh, and that is uh, the ultimate act of faith really where it's like jumping into the abyss into the black hole which are images of uh, where you're going into the total unknown without any map. And it, like an abyss is like, you know, it's dark and frightening. But just through, because of, of your faith and trust, you're willing to throw yourself in what happens. And uh, so these are these are the conundrums of the holy life, and the uh, um, like in the the crucifixion. Um, you know that a scene where where you know like like I use that as an example, a Christian uh, example of the. Of where the uh, Christ is nailed to a cross, uh, subjected to torture and humiliation. You know, these are the things we're most fright- frightened of. <laughs> Stripped naked, made fun of, you know, and and uh, tortured, and then uh, and then the forgiveness. You know, he says, "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." Then he says this strange thing about the cry of, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? And even, you know, not only is he being rejected, tortured, humiliated from above, but God deserts him. (laughs) And then the surrender. The surrender. There's a kind of surrender in the midst of total desolation and loss. I mean, that's a really harsh image. But in but in terms of of, uh, of I mean that that seems to be slightly extreme, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, it oftentimes interpreted as a historical act by the Christians, but in terms of of an ex- a historical event by the Christians, but in terms of 
spiritual development, what I call it, is, is that more and more as you see through the, the pain and the suffering uh, of your attachments and uh, the, the body, the, the identity with your body, with your emotional habits and thoughts. And when you really see the, the suffering caused through attaching, then, then it become, your faith in this path becomes very clear. And you, you realize that this path is, is, is here and now, it's ever-present, it's deathless, timeless, uh, it's, it's realizable before you die, and, and, it's, and it's always, you know, no matter what happens, no matter how, many, how much you get tortured, abused, humiliated, and deserted and betrayed, it's always here. So, I mean, that... <laughs> and and but, the other, but that for you to know that, rather than believe in some kind of deathless reality as an abstract idea, that, that doesn't work. Uh, and then you need more like maybe to personify that as some kind of holy figure that loves you and, and that gives you a... But then even with Jesus, that deserted him on the cross, that the belief in a holy divine father that, that, that loves me, that deserted him at that moment. That, that image was lost. Then the... But then the act of faith was in surrender, you know, and to to the to the suffering of the cross. So, in in terms of just our own practice, the the um, I just apply that in new ways. I, I hope I don't have to be crucified or experience <laughs> uh, such a miserable thing in my life, but uh, if I can deal with just the ordinary irritations of monastic life in that way, I mean, I don't want to be put up on a cross, (laughs) but how well do I do in just daily life in the monastery? Can I forgive people for they know not what they do? Am I any good at that? Can I, can I just let go and surrender to the moment rather than ex- hope that somebody's going to come along and save the day? You know, or expect intervention from outside. I need, you know, some, something out there to come and help me through this. I much do just to surrender and, and just trust in the in the simple act of awareness in the present, no matter what the pressures and the demands of of a community can be, or or, or the little frustrating irritations of that that are part of human experience. So I decided to work with these things. These are more real for me than waiting till the big moment when somebody decides to crucify me, <laughs> which is very unlikely to happen. Yes? <laughs>